and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I am your host, Austin Glidden, and today, as always, we are brought to you by The Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all your film needs, because they never shut up about movies over there. Also, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is facebook.com backslash mediumcoolpod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, and we'll pop up. And you can also at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also find us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. That's our email. You can email us there with any comments, questions, concerns, feedback, whatever it is that you want. Let us know how we're doing and things that you would like to see, and we will do our best to get that worked out. Now, if you're listening to this on iTunes or maybe Spotify or maybe even Google Podcasts, please subscribe or follow us on there. That will only help us out. Leave uh, reviews and anything you can to help us grow. We're getting uh, awesome interviews lined up. I mean, like with some people we don't even deserve to have at this point. I mean, it's really, really exciting, and I can't wait to tell you guys everyone we're going to be talking to. For example, next week we are going to have Galen Ross. She is the star of the original George Romero Dawn of the Dead, also George Romero's Creep Show. She's in that, and she was in a cult classic slasher called Madman. Now she's a filmmaker, documentarian. She's been making documentaries for the last 25 to 30 years. Our conversation will take up all of next week's episode. It is really, really awesome. We're probably going to have some more bonus content for you before Saturday, but I have to keep my lips sealed on that for now. It's a surprise, so keep an eye out on our social media, uh, and we will get to you on there. Now, today, we dropped some bonus content. We, uh, Joe and I watched the documentary on Hulu called Totally Under Control by Alex Gibney, and uh, the movie follows tr- the Trump administration's response to, COVID- to the COVID-19 pandemic, and before you think it's going to be super slanted to the left or or, you know, uh, uh, super biased or anything. I mean, this movie is is first-person expert testimony from people that were involved in the response, um, as well as tons of evidence and footage and different things to back it up. So before you sit and say that, please go check it out and uh, and see what they have to say, because we also spoke with... Because why, why would Joe and I have any idea, any authority to talk about COVID? Well, we talked to one of Joe's friends, uh, and now mine, Eileen White. She's an epidemiologist here in Indian, uh, Indianapolis, and she's worked for the government. And she talks to us a little bit about the documentary because she watched it as well. And so uh, in that bonus content, you'll be able to hear us talk about the documentary and Eileen White. And, you know, I... I guess this is more personal, but you know, I made it bonus content because while we were recording that episode, actually, uh, my grandmother died of COVID. Um, and it's, uh, my grandmother was basically my mother, uh, for, uh, you know, a third of my life. Uh, so, um, you know, I just remember, uh, I talk a bit about, you know, getting off of our call and seeing a voicemail from my grandfather and people texting me and, uh, it was just a, a very strange happenstance that my grandmother died of COVID while we were discussing uh, COVID and how it has been essentially wrongfully handled. Um, but please go, it would mean a lot to me if you go check out that bonus content. It's really important stuff to me, and I hope you get something out of it. Now, you know, to bring us all back to today, uh, today I have Joe back to discuss our top five favorite movies about politics, seeing as how today is Election Day, November 3rd, so please check out our top five. But first, before we get there, we're going to talk with Jeff Rhoda about his new movie coming out Friday called 
18 to party. It's been uh, said if Richard Linklater and John Hughes had a baby, this movie would be it. Um, And Joe and I got to watch it this last weekend, and I can speak for myself and say that I thought it was great. I really, really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed, easy for me to say, I really enjoyed it. And Jeff was an awesome dude. We have a pretty short 15-minute little conversation with him, and after that, we'll get to our favorite movies about politics. But first, Jeff Roden. My name is Jeff Rhoda. I am a filmmaker, and uh, this is my first film that I directed. It's called 18 to Party, and uh, we're really excited about it, and we're excited to share it, and uh, we hope that other people feel the same. What grade are you in? Eighth? Eighth grade in the back. What if we don't get in? We're both getting in. Stop worrying about situations that don't exist. Why do you do that? I don't know. We're gonna get in. Not until the older kids get in, but after that, we're gonna get in. You should come back to drama. We're doing our town. What about our town? You guys heard about the UFOs, right? There aren't any UFOs. It's like a NASA thing now. If the government's involved, then we're all fucked. Fucking Reagan. Seven kids died last year. I mean, it really is jinxed here. It's just coincidence. Things aren't jinxed. You don't think things are jinxed? Do you think they're UFOs? I don't think Brighton's jinxed. I just think that's what people want to believe. I'm not the one who went to Aaron Palmer's summer party. Shut up, Kira. And made such a mess. How do you like that, Kira? She thinks she's too good for everyone. She thinks she's too bad for everyone. That's the real problem. Everything is crazy and everyone is crazy and no one's paying attention. The thing, it's real. It's really real. Just come on, you'll see. Dude, there's no UFO! I got to see this today. Uh, I think Joe might have watched it. He watched it this weekend. Um, But, you know, I'll just say this to start. You know, this movie is pretty wild. I mean, (laughs) you know, you you use unknown teen actors. uh, You know, you have the soundtrack, the subject matter. I mean, it feels personal. It seems kind of autobiographical to an extent. Could you do me a favor and Tell the listeners a bit about uh, about the movie. You know what was what's the movie about to you? You know how how did it even come to be? Uh, I, you know it started as a you know you're right. I mean there's a there's a it's autobiographical to you know a large degree in the micro sense and in the macro sense. And I think that uh, that's the way it's for me. It's the easiest way to talk about it because it's about some a very little thing that takes place over you know you know, six hours basically. And, uh, and it seems as if the stakes are really low. Um, and in, and that's as a microcosm for a more generational idea that is, uh, uh it's, it's much, much bigger and, and it's very macro, you know, it's, uh, um, it is a, it's a story that came from an amalgamation of a lot of different things from my childhood, you know, things that I heard, things that, were 
rumors, things that did happen and, and things that just stayed in my mind for a really, really long time or things that bothered me for a long time. I was, an, I was a latchkey kid, like a Gen X latchkey kid, you know? Same. And uh, yeah, divorce, mm, divorce, divorce, parents, single mom, you know, every other weekend with the dad, like a crappy stepfather that came into the picture. And, uh, um, and that was not uncommon, you know, and, uh, and not a lot of, of, of oversight, not a lot of supervision, you know? Um, and so, you know, and I grew up in a very specific area, uh, that, you know, when I was much littler, you know, um, it's a very small community and, and a lot of different grades and ages were packed in the same school. And, and when, so when you were 12 years old, you were walking the halls with 18 and 19 year olds and mm -hmm. they might as well have been 50. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and very sadly at this time, there was a, an enormous amount of, of terrible things happening in this really small community, specifically a spate of suicides that was happening. And, and, uh, um, and in that time, at that time, there was sort of a national suicide epidemic at this specific time. Um, and it was something that stayed with me. And, and I didn't know any of the people because they were older, the kids. And, and uh, so it was just kind of like adult world to me. And so I just sort of heard things. And then over decades, really, it's just something that kind of haunted me. And it's something that, um, you know, I really wanted to explore, you know, my life and, and what happened then as I really got older and really recognized and became prouder of my generation, you know, and, and, uh, um, and it's become more and more meaningful to me to be a part of Generation X and to recognize Generation X and, uh, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's the smallest generation, you know, and, and um, it's wedged in between sort of like these, raging tempers, you know, and, and, uh, and, and there, there's something in a way, like, I, I don't know how you guys felt growing up, but, um, like this group of kids is not a close knit group of kids that in this film, but there's something sort of, you know, tribal about them. And, uh, and there's something sort of tribal about generation X, you know, and, um, it's just one of those sort of like, you know, you know, put upon generations that have probably kept everything together, to be honest, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. um, and so it might be the legacy in the long term. And in a lot of ways, you know, where we are is, you know, we came from those kids, you know, we, it was a strange generation that we straddled both the, like we were the last generation to straddle the analog and digital world. And, and, uh, um, and we were the last generation that would have to sit around outside and have to talk to each other you know, and, and not look at their phones and, and stuff like that. And, uh, um, and so, you know, that's a rambling way to talk about it, but that was kind of the, the impetus and also seeing other, you know, it's like, I, I am inspired by so many different things. There's a Swedish director that I love. Uh, there's, you know, uh, there's Thornton Wilder, you know, it's like making our town. That was a big influence for me, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, so many different, you know, paintings and plays and films, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, it, you're, you're not given a lot of chances in life to make something that you want to make to your own specifications, you know, and, and if you ever are lucky enough to get to do that, do it, you know, and, yeah. and it might not, 
again. And that's how I felt, you know, and, and it was because of these great producers and uh, um, that really believed in it. And, and you have to keep believing in something these days, you know, and, and, uh, um, and we do and, and, and they do. And so it's just been a really cool road, you know, yeah. and we're just, finally, we're just happy to share, you know, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Can um, you, you mentioned the, um, that kind of the, the issues that were going on with, with Gen X at that time and in this community in particular, can you talk about how you can kind of encapsulate all of those different, you know, you, you mentioned the divorce, you know, last key kids, suicide, you know, just kind of just that dynamic of being in that small town. Can you talk about how, you know, at a script level, you, you can integrate all of those kind of themes um, kind of without kind of losing the effectiveness of any of them. Cause that's, that's one thing that is kind of a strength I think is, is that you, you know, you, you have all of these things that are on the periphery of what the characters are going through. Of course, we don't really see much of it other than them being by themselves, but how do you kind of manage to do that at, at the script level with, without, you know, and keeping them all front and center? You know, I think that, um, I, I think, you know, when I, when I was like reflecting back on that time and those, the, the, the suicides and the sort of the neglect of kids and, and, you know, I just, I'll tell you, actually, it's funny because I was reading newspaper articles about that um, back like way in the archives. And because it was a national epidemic suicide, there was a lot of national news about it. And every single interview that I read, every article in terms of when they were interviewing, uh, you know, school administration officials or parents or teachers or any adult, when they asked them what was going on with the kids, they said, drugs, the job market, like, like, a, like an 11th grader cares about the job market, you know, <laughs> like peer pressure, right, right. you know, these things and not one person and all these things said like, Hey, maybe we're not looking out, you know, maybe we're not looking out enough. And it really moved me. You know what I mean? It really moved me. And, and, uh, um, you know, and that, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much of that answers your question. Like yeah. I, you know, it was just, it, it was that, it was that kind of thing where like no one's looking out for these kids and they're looking out there and they don't know that they don't know what's going on. And I think when you're using young kids rather than like 18 year old kids don't really interest me very much, you know, because they're, <laughs> more, they're, they're more outward, you know, they're more like, you know, and, but when you're 13 or 12, it's still like, you're really self-centered. You, you, you talk about things and you don't know the meaning of things. Like one character shell, you know, if like disseminating what he talks about, it's like, this is a kid who's getting like abused at home and neglected yeah. and going through a lot of stuff. And like, and while he's actually defending those, like his, his mom and his stepdad, you know, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, and so for me, that, that was of, of much greater interest to see kids do that rather than, you know, talk about things, you know, these sure. kids talk, they talk around things, they talk past each other. And, um, you know, my experience is that kids don't talk in a sentimental way. And, uh, but they can be, you know, they, they, they want to express their feelings, you know, and, and mm -hmm. so again, I went from the micro to the macro all the time. And, oh, and, yeah. and so there was, again, in terms of, you know, it's funny, when I went into this, I was like, you know, I want to make like the generation X, our town, you know, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and which sounds like a 
stupid thing to say, but like the, you know, the things from our town that stand out is that it's a, you know, it's what looks like a really, you know, nice community. That's, I mean, it's actually, it's, it's a hostile, intolerant, homogenous community that, and that masquerades as something else, you know? Yeah. And, and in a way, I think that's what I wanted this to be. And, and, uh, um, you know, and it's like, you know, it's metaphorical. I mean, there's a nightclub there that we never go inside, but it's like very much, you know, it's really about like generation X waiting for something that if it comes, isn't going to be that great, you know? And, and, uh, <laughs> And, and, I, and I think that that kind of, you know, sort of defines us in a way, you know, yeah. uh, and, and you sort of get what you get, you know? Yeah. I mean, for, for me watching it, I'll just say this leading into my next question is, sure. um, you know, uh, you're kind of touching on the fact that, you know, they're talking around things. And one of the strings for me is I love movies that uh, find the little moments that we often either forget or that we don't think about, but we're actually extremely pivotal at that time in our lives. So even yeah. take something like Linklater's Boyhood, like that's the entire film is little moments we forget about. They don't show the graduation, you know, they don't show like moving. It's all like these little things and something uh, that's just really something I loved about 18 to party is how you, you tend to find these little moments. Like when Shell was with the young lady in the construction site. Right. And then talking, I just, I, I just love them going through the bag. I mean, the whole thing, but to get to my next question, which might be our last because time's uh, coming up here. Um, tell me real quick about the cast because it is absolutely awesome. And I just love them so much. Uh, what was it like working with unknown teen actors that were basically responsible for carrying out your vision? I mean, how did, how, how did that go? You know, it's, it's so, it was so unpredictable that it didn't even feel like stressful at all. Like we had a great casting director. We saw a ton of kids. Um, I wanted to balance the cast with a few that had a lot of experience and several that had none, literally none, you know, um, they were so clever, you know, and, uh, and I knew, and I knew in their audition, sometimes they would say one word or one line in an audition. And I was like, that's, that's it. That's all I need to see just because I could see the level of intelligence and precociousness. And, 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 uh, so it was really kind of on them. We rehearsed a lot. I did a lot of readings. I went through the script and I worked with them individually for a long time. And, and then all of a sudden you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, I don't know what's going to happen. And then, and they, they worked hard. They kind of, you know, it was my job basically to create a culture, I think, where they could sort of inhabit the same like cosmic space, you know, Sure. and, uh, and they were prepared. I think kids like that are competitive in a way and no one wanted to be the kid that wasn't prepared. And that movie was not going to work if someone didn't know his lines or wasn't immersed in it, you know? And yeah. so I'm just so proud of them, man. And, and they deserve people to see the film, you know, if nothing else. And, and, uh, I'm glad you like them, you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're a really special group of kids. I mean, I, I sincerely think they're awesome. I mean, it, it, please go out and check out 18 to Party. Jeff, why don't you tell us how our listeners can see this movie when it comes this, out? Go ahead. Yeah, this Friday, the 6th, um, you'll probably want to have a little break uh, from this week. Um, uh, on, on, uh, and it might be a very celebratory day, um, but Alamo Drafthouse, uh, their virtual cinema, they have the sort of like a premiere and the first, you know, 
uh, sort of distribution of it. Um, that starts on November 6th on Friday. Um, it's like the virtual premiere and the whole cast is going to be there and it's going to be cool. And if you go to uh, 18topartymovie.com, you could access the link there to Alamo Draft House. Just go straight to Alamo Draft House or, or 18 to Parties on all social media platforms and stuff. And then Lamley's uh, virtual cinema gets to have it. And then that goes, they both have it through the month. And then on December 1st, it goes to Amazon Prime and iTunes and, and VOD. So it's this kind of slower rollout, which is great because it gives time for people to to you know catch wind of it if they if they respond to it and we hope they do you know yeah and and i do too and uh jeff i i wish i've seen some other interviews you've done and kind of was looking into the film you and i brother could talk for an a good hour (laughs) i mean whether it be i want to talk to you about the music i want to talk to you about like so much but this is all the time we have for uh today call me me, man i don't i don't have anything else to do i could talk (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm gonna, hey, don't say that because I will hit you up. I will find you and I will talk to you. I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. All right, yeah. all right. Then, then that might happen. But for now, Jeff, I want to thank you so much uh, for giving us your time. And everybody, go please check out 18 to Party. It'll be out this Friday and pretty wide uh, virtual opening on December 1st. So please check it out. Austin, Joe, thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thank you very much, Jeff. Jeff seems like a really good dude. Everybody go check out 18 to Party. It's his new and first feature, uh, but it's his new film, uh, 18 to Party. Really awesome. Uh, it comes out through the Alamo Draft House. Uh, it's like a virtual premiere this Friday, but also um, you can check it out December 1st on a wider virtual release. And I got to say, you guys heard him. Verbal contract. There's a verbal contract there. Homie said that he would talk to me. All I got to do is call him. Now, I just got to figure out what his, his phone number is. But the point is, if I can get a hold of this guy, we might have to have some bonus content and talk to Jeff some more leading up to the December 1st virtual release. That said, I think that movie's awesome. Maybe sometime Joe and I will talk about it. But right now, Joe and I have some political movies to talk about. This is our top five favorite movies about politics. Joe, we, we decided to do the top five favorite movies about politics because today is election day, November 3rd, and uh, we just thought, what better day than to dive into movies about politics? I mean, it kind of writes itself, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, we're going to do our top five right now. We're going to try to keep this shorter than three hours like we did on last week's episode, <laughs> uh, and uh, we're trying something new here. And uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and we're going to start by giving our criteria on how we chose these and, and, and what led to that. And then we will jump into our number fives. But Joe, uh, if you don't mind, why don't you go ahead and give us your criteria? Sure. Yeah. So I tried to, um, as much as I could, stick to movies that more directly focused on politics kind of as a process. So... I mean, you can argue really any racial injustice movie um, is political in nature. 
you could, you know, you can make arguments for any number of, you know, of, of different movies. You know, uh, a lot of war movies, you could say, are are inherently political, and you know, and there's certainly political undertones in a, in many, many movies, um, and and maybe even some movies that I would say are better than any of, you know, any of these five. Um, so I I tried to look at movies that had something that in some way went behind the scenes on the political process. Um, now all of the, well, now, um, two of these are fictional, um, two, you know, three of these are, are based on, on true stories or, you know, true events. Two of them are, are fictional. Um, but they're all about, um, they're all about the upper levels of the American government, um, and how their policies, the things they have done have directly affected things in the world. If not, just more, you know, more being a spotlight on how how presidents and Congress people um, do things, you know, and and of course the associated people who are, you know, who are in their circles. So that was kind of what I tried to do. So, for example, um, I one that I left out, and I'm sorry, maybe it'll even be on your list. I don't know. Um, I I took out Doctor Strangelove as one, although it's you know it obviously politics is a huge part of that for me. I thought it's you know the war aspect of it is kind of the the is a little bit maybe of a bigger thing um and i actually originally had it on my list and i was like ah oh, i'm going to take it off and i'm going to try to i'm going to try to go more directly the the poli- uh, you know politicians having politicians in in all of my movies so um and and have them like as the main stars of the movie so um so that you know that's why a movie like that might not be in there so um so yeah so yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I kind of went the opposite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I have like very, very strict criteria. Well, I don't know. When I start saying my movies, maybe it won't seem as strict. Maybe it actually seemed far more uh, open. Sure. But uh, the first little bullet point of my criteria is only American films. And the only reason I chose that is because, you know, there are uh, – uh, a ton of, of foreign features, you know, maybe chief among them is something like the battle of Algiers, which I could really talk mm-hmm. about or, or, or movies like that, that could get really uh, political from other countries. And those are just as valid, but this is election Absolutely. day in the U S and I wanted to focus on our politics in order to keep mm-hmm. it more focused. Cause I could just go on and on with these movies. Like you of said, course. you know, it's, I mean, you can make anything if you make the argument. And I think that's sure. a lot of what I did here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I chose the one film per filmmaker thing again, just to keep a focus, which it didn't really even, it was ended up being unnecessary because I chose not to do any documentaries. I wanted to okay. do all, uh, you know, fictional features uh, that yeah. might be based on true events or not, but they're mm-hmm. all directed by, there's like a, they were crafted, right? Right. Um, Correct. Yeah. So I took no, cause I could. I'll tell you now, my top five, if I was looking at politics specifically, would all be documentaries. <laughs> like, yeah. no matter how yeah. much I love these movies. So I thought, well, we'll make it more interesting. I'll set those aside. This actually be more difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And it was. Um, and then I was admittedly obtuse with <laughs> with some of my choices here. <laughs> and, uh-huh. uh, but they are probably the most accurate in terms of what I would choose as my favorite fictional features Mm-hmm. Um, or at least constructed. Uh, I don't even remember the word I used before, but it was a good one. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, the ones that were created. So, anyways, that was that was my uh, criteria for this, uh, mm-hmm. and I think we're good to go with number five. Joe, you want to go ahead and yeah. start us off? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. My number five, um, uh, again, is, is a biopic um, of one of our greatest, you know, greatest presidents in history. Um, so I, I went from 2012, uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Um, this was not a movie, honestly, when I, when I was going to watch it the first time that I was all that excited about. Um, I was just like, it's a, you know, it's a political period piece, you know, it's going to be dry. And, um, but what I wasn't prepared for was just how dirty they portrayed the politics as in, in that time frame. You know, they, the, you know, the, the politicians of yesteryear, our founding fathers, and obviously this is not quite founding fathers is about a hundred years or so after that, maybe not quite a hundred years, but, um, so these people are not our founding fathers, but they're, you know, they're in a sense, they're very important historical figures for us and we have them held in a certain light and the, the reality of what those politics were, at least as portrayed in this film took me by surprise, um, just how kind of underhanded they are. And it, you know, I just, I, I love what Steven Spielberg did with, with Lincoln as a character and obviously using Daniel Day Lewis was, you know, uh, a, a great deal of that's going to go to him, but the way that it kind of deconstructed who a, a real political figure is, who a, a legendary, you know, figure in American politics, who he is, um, it was very entertaining. It didn't feel like two and a half hours. And, um, there were a couple of nice beats even toward the end that, you know, things, you know, I'm, I'm, a historical novice, you know, I would call myself a novice more than like a buff. And so some of these people I didn't, I'd never heard of. Um, I certainly hadn't paid much attention to them. And there were some, there were some really fun things that happened in this movie, some really, you know, poignant things as well. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's my number five is, uh, Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. Yeah. Lincoln. I saw in theaters only the one time. And mm -hmm. uh, as I was doing my research, cause often I'll, uh, at the very least I'll Google, like in this yep. case, it'd be like movies about politics just to get all like lists and lists. I'll look through like the first page of websites and see mm -hmm. what they're 27, like random numbers, like 27 best movies yeah. about politics. It's like why right. 27. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'll like look at all of those things and just just get all the titles kind of in my head yeah. so I can select. Mm -hmm. um, and Lincoln was on so many of these. And yeah, um, yeah that I don't need it's one I don't remember well enough to kind yeah. of go into, like I said, I saw it in theaters when it first came out. I love mm -hmm. Daniel day Lewis. Um, yeah. I will admit I, even though they do highlight the, the kind of like dirtiness, uh, at mm -hmm. times, part of me wanted it to just go dirtier. Like that yeah. was a fucked up time. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but really. at the same time, what do you expect? It's also like a Spielberg movie in yeah. like the post, millennium you know like i, I feel yes. like all of his movies kind of have this progressively more so i'd even say that kind of a vibe you know what i mean Absolutely. uh so but overall i did i did enjoy it i i just i wish i could talk a bit more about it but that is your number five yeah. that's lincoln boom steven spielberg um wow okay uh so <laughs> my number five is uh, a nice little gem from 1957 directed by Sidney lumet called mm -hmm. 12 angry men and okay. um, I'm going to justify this. There's okay. Like a weird bug flying around my face. <laughs> um, anyways, sorry, uh, I'm not editing that out. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so I chose. Uh, that's, so that's, I, that's the fly. That's Mike Pence's fly, <laughs> by the way. 
fuzzing around your head. I recognized him. I, I thought for a second he landed. I was like, oh, dude, that's you. <laughs> that's so good. Um, I, you know, I, I was talking to um, my buddy Thrasher. Shout out to Brandon Thrasher. He's probably going to listen to this. Um, but anyways, I was talking to him yesterday, and I straight up said, um, you know, I won't tell you what's on my list, but one thing that will not be on there is 12 Angry Men. Like, I was 100% against it. And then the more I thought about it today, the more I was like, I have to put it on. And I have to say, out of all five movies on here, 12 Angry Men might be, I'd really have to think about it, but it might be my favorite movie of all of them. Okay, I mean, I think it's just really, really outstanding. However, uh, I think it, when I'm thinking about political movies, I think that one is probably the least of the five. Therefore, I wanted it on the list, but I just put it at the beginning. So this is uh, the 1957 uh, Sidney Lumet-directed picture, 12 Angry Men. Uh, We had a... uh, Budgets really don't matter at this point, but I thought this was interesting. So the budget was um, speculated to be around $330,000. This is uh, backed by Variety in the Washington Post. And then um, what's funny is I went to Box Office Mojo, which is where I often get my my box office numbers, and uh, it says $576. That sounds wrong. <laughs> I think that's just wrong. And then Variety says it made $2 million. I don't know. My point is, there is there seems to be in my kind of basic research no kind of conclusive number, and I don't know why. Um, but if you haven't seen Twelve Angry Men, and I'm assuming most of the listeners probably have, if I had to guess, but if you haven't, this is basically um, a situation where there are twelve jury members, and they leave the uh, the courtroom and go into a jury room to decide if a young Spanish American is guilty or innocent of murdering his father. And what begins as an open and shut case soon becomes a mini-drama of each of the jurors' prejudices and preconceptions about the trial, the accused, and each other. And uh, it's adapted from an hour-long TV movie, or teleplay as they used to call them, um, from three years prior to it, 1954. Some of the same actors are in it, too. Um, so, so here are a couple of things. And, and this is kind of a through line, I feel like, with a few of my cho- choices, is it's less about the movie and what the movie stood for, historically, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, 12 Angry Men is dealing with issues of civil rights just as the movement is growing, like, exponentially in 57, okay? Yeah. So this movie deals with race uh, in particular because they're talking about essentially putting a Hispanic American who is poor behind bars. Now this sounds still very relevant to today. Yeah. And, and was it, is it even, you might remind me, is it even like they might be executing him? I don't remember if that's this is a death. Like they're talking about death penalty. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's forever. If not, you know, I, I, like I said, I don't remember the, if it's death penalty or, or if it's, um, um, if it was life in prison, but yeah, but it's it's his life essentially, right? Either yeah, way. and and I don't remember if they specifically say it, but the jurors do talk about you know just like throw him on death row and let him die. Yeah. You know, I mean that's uh-huh. kind of the the at least the spirit behind it. Uh, right. And you know, it shows him he's like this eighteen year old kid, like this really. I mean, that's technically an adult, I understand, but you right. know, uh, it's just it's really fascinating. So, uh, for example, you know, some of the characters, the jurors talk about stereotypes 
that are exists in our world. You know, the boy's clearly a killer. Just look at him because he's Hispanic and poor. Um, right. You know, all of those things. Juror number eight, played by Henry Fonda, is the only one of the 12 that took the initiative to start deliberations, like talking uh, yes. on the Hispanic boy's innocence. So all of them came into it. Uh, mm-hmm. And honestly, if you haven't seen it, I'm not real. This is like the first five minutes. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, like this yeah, is yeah. not ruining anything, by the way. But yeah. um, you can watch the trailer and get this much information. But anyways, you know, uh, like the rest of the jurymen, even even the uh, jury foreman were willing to condemn the accused to death without discussion because they all assumed that the accused uh, 18-year-old man, you know, mm-hmm. was guilty. Um, and, uh, are they all assumed? Yeah, he was guilty. Sorry. And so, uh, you know, Henry Fonda being, you know, the forever lovable, at least that this is like prior to once upon a time in the West where he's just like an old dirty bastard. Right. (laughs) But like, uh, but yeah, like he's the, the good, he's the morality scale, right? (laughs) Like he's the guy and he's not even saying the guy's innocent. He's just saying like, I just want to talk about it, you know? And, and the, the movie just, you know, continues from there. And I mean, it's really amazing. Uh, and I actually bear with me, Joe, because I have I have sure. quite a few points here. It's kind of uh-huh. a, partially a defense on why this is on the list, but uh-huh. also just because they're interesting as well. So the film was created for many reasons beyond entertainment or making money. Lumet was, uh, you know, particularly interested or partially rather interested in the film to spread the awareness of issues with juries, because even at that time, juries were an issue. Juror number eleven, uh, which none of them have names, they're just considered juror and then a number. So juror 11, uh, I think it was, uh, was that actor played an immigrant and, uh, the immigrant character goes, you know, as far as to explicitly state that everyone must play their part, you know, in our justice system and reminds all the jurors of their patriotic duty. So I find it really interesting that as they're digging into this, they're looking at people's kind of personal beliefs related to our politics. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that. Um, think about the time. We're talking about the late 50s. And in the early 50s, you know, this uh, there was McCarthyism. So, uh, you know, we're, we're following the tensions of McCarthyism. And the jurors are essentially following the example of Joseph McCarthy. I mean, uh, Joseph McCarthy, for people that don't know, is uh, an American witch hunter, I'll call him. I'll go as far as to say that. Uh in the early 50s, and McCarthy would rashly accuse tons of political figures and celebrities of being communist, and then contributed uh, because of that to the Red Scare, essentially. Let's be honest. So, you know, McCarthy's quick decision-making and accusations quickly condemned many. People were blacklisted, people, some of which went to jail, and all kinds of, I mean, there were actual punishments for this. Yeah, and um, ruined, right, basically. Yeah. Say again, Joe? Yeah, I said their lives lives were ruined basically from from this and from the the fallout, you know, of, of those accusations and those hearings and things. Yeah, one hundred percent. I would love to talk about like nineteen forties and fifties filmmakers that fled to Europe because they were going to lose all their jobs. I think a really notorious, just to go on a quick tangent, uh, "Night in the City" by Jules Dassin. That was the last film he made here before he moved uh, to France. Um, and that has a great story. Hopefully one day I'll tell the story of Night in the City. Um, but uh, yeah, that's great. They actually had him do Night in the City in, in England, so they couldn't harass him about like these communist claims. And um, 
yeah, they basically sent him with like six cameras and so much money and just like, make your movie. I owe you that much kind of a situation. We'll talk about that some other time. The point is, uh, you know, the way that McCarthy treated people is uh, kind of uh, shown in kind of like allegorically maybe or something through these jurors. You know, they're all ready to just say, look at the guy. He did this thing. There's enough surface evidence, you know, much like McCarthy with, oh, you attended a communist thing before? Oh, you're a communist. You know, they don't take in any context or anything. So anyways, my point is McCarthyism plays, you know, a role due to the cultural expectations of the time or experiences. Um, You know, uh, American values and culture are at play here. And I'm going to get to the uh, specifically the political stuff, but all of this is kind of setting into it. So, you know, the American values and culture. What's funny is the Constitution rules all citizens are innocent until proven guilty, which strongly shapes, you know, uh, our American morals. Right. Yet many citizens, though they might agree with that statement, are guilty of judging people before proof is established. We see this time and time and time again. Oh, they did it. Of course they did it. And we see that in the movie. And and I love that there is a constant juxtaposition with American values that we see on paper versus American cultural ideology. This idea that um, we say we believe these things, but our actions show something else. So the movie does that very well. Um, You know, the film's representation of our country at the time, for example, uh, it deals with that, for example, with like Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 passing. Now, now this uh, this case was um, the led to the law that says racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional. Okay, so that's what that case was. And um, and just before this movie was filmed, it was passed. So viewers would likely have had a heightened awareness of this racial issue, right? This would have been at the forefront of people's minds, it's safe to say. So the jury also had to, you know, had internal struggles throughout the film, often accusing each other of, you know, on the basis of age or ethnic background and social class, just as the United States struggled to work through similar struggles, you know, in in our everyday lives. So, uh, I mean, I think this really starts, this movie starts to really tackle a lot of uh, issues that were happening in our society and in our government. And so the film has been criticized, full transparency, uh, as what not to do as a jury, because a lot of what is done is actually not allowed in reality. So it's not the most accurate portrayal of what you know jurors would do. However, the film is more about morality, ethics, and how people's beliefs, attitudes, and values, and anybody who knows me knows I'm trying really hard not to talk about BAVs, beliefs, attitudes, and values. I'll go on that rant sometime. But how people's beliefs, attitudes, and values affect their political ideologies. And this is where politics plays in. So um, essentially, every aspect that I just talked about is inherently political. And so there by proxy, though the movie does focus, I admit, on morality and ethics, um, the underlying aspects are inherently political. And this ties into what you were saying. You can make any movie political, right? (laughs) And so I just tried to make a case. I will say this really quickly and then I'll be done, Joe. Uh, The cast is amazing. I love Lee J. Cobb in this movie. He's so good. Henry Fonda is Henry Fonda. Okay. The representation of morality. He's great. Um, And, you know, in terms of the direction, Lumet takes a film set in one room and creates a riveting drama. Okay, I mean, I can't stress enough how much I love this movie. The cinematography is an excellent propeller for the movie. 
uh, super close-ups, tracking shots, just in the room, you know. Yep. But they're so effective, and they tell the story so well. Uh, you know, that's my number five right there. I'm gonna I'm gonna shut it down now. Twelve Angry Men. <laughs> I could talk about it forever. I was doing research on it, just kept building up. I think that's probably the longest one I'm gonna talk about. But Joe, <laughs> you've seen Twelve Angry Men. I know you. Yes. Oh yes. How do you feel about oh, yeah. it? Yeah. So so let me say, Twelve Angry Men is absolutely one of my favorite films. I would go so far as to call it of the 20th century, maybe the quintessential American film. It encapsulates what the American belief system should be, right? Um, I didn't include it on my list just kind of for some of those reasons that you said that I I wanted to be more overt with it. Um, I absolutely love this movie, and I don't blame you at all for putting it on there. Um, You know, I, I just... I decided I didn't, you know, I wanted mine to have a little more of an eclectic, you know, look to it and look and feel because of, you know, just because of stuff like that, I would end up talking about this movie for an hour, <laughs> just like you, you know, like, like the way you were just talking about it, I would have been, you know, on it too. Um, Henry Fonda's performance is one of my favorites of all time. Um, you know, you mentioned Lee J. Cobb, but let me listen to some of the other people in this. E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Ed Begley Sr., not Jr., um, all in that film. And, you know, you mentioned the cinematography. I wanted to just mention that, that the way that this, and now this movie is in black and white, if you haven't seen it. I mean, hopefully most of you have seen it. If you haven't, stop listening to this and go watch it. And, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, and then, then come back and pick it back up where you were, because it is an important film for everyone to watch. Um, and now that you say this, I realize I haven't shown this to my kids. I might actually try and just show this movie to them. Um, but for a film to be in black and white, the way that he captured the, for instance, the heat of the room, right? Like they're, they're all in there sweating. And that's one of the things that is a, you know, is a, uh, that propels the plot along is that, you know, one guy's got tickets to the Yankees tonight and, you know, they're all hot and they're suffering in this room and they want to get out of here. And they're like, let's just put this guy away and get out of here. And that's the that's Henry Fonda's whole basis of argument to begin with is like, listen, we're going to go home and live our lives and for, eventually forget about this. That guy is going to, you know, he's going to die in the electric chair or he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. Like we're talking about a guy's life and we're sitting here like, oh, I got you know, Hey, I got tickets to the game tonight. You know, oh, I better get out of this place. It's like maybe we should take this a little more seriously than we are. And. And that's for me something that every time I hear someone um, talk about how they got a, you know a jury summons, you know, and they're and they're complaining about it, I, I think of this movie. You know, that's I absolutely. And I have been called to serve in a jury once, and this movie was front of mind when I did it. Yeah. And I was I was in my early twenties. I was a really shy kid. I wasn't someone who spoke up, but I realized in that moment that I had to be, I had to be Henry Fonda, <laughs> you know, if, if that's what I needed to be, um, because I'm going to be making a decision that's going to affect someone for, you know, a long time to come. This is not just some thing you take lightly, right? This is not just some minor annoyance. This isn't, you know, this isn't going to get your oil changed, right? Like something you got to do. This is something that's going to affect someone forever, maybe, so you got to take yourself seriously, and and yeah, and in that sense, absolutely, you know, as far as the the politics of our, you know, 
as far as our political system goes, it's absolutely relevant. And I absolutely would, would say you're completely justified in, in including it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, like I said, I'm, I went just, I went off in a slightly different direction, so I didn't put it on there. <laughs> yeah. Based on your criteria, it makes total sense. I want to say yeah. two things really fast to touch on what you uh-huh. said, and then I want to move forward. Yeah. Um, you spot on with the, the heat. Uh, the the idea of hot. I mean, they get hotter and sweatier and hotter and sweatier as they go. Yes, they're taking layers off. They're doing all this, which you know, as it gets hotter and hotter in there, the tensions are rising more. It's more, yeah. you know, there's it's one hundred percent representational, uh, or, or a representation rather, sorry, of yeah. the inner conflict happening in the room. Yes. Um, but it's almost like uh, uh, um, do the right thing. Where that movie, uh-huh. that movie's another one that like the temperature and the heat feels palpable. Like I feel like I'm hot watching it. And and Twelve Angry Men, what thirty forty years earlier, you know, does uh, does that same thing. I mean that yeah, that's really spot on. And you also mentioned uh, the thing about the guy with the Yankees tickets. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, that's. I mean, is there any better example of privilege in our lives? Right. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I mean, you know, the guy is just wanting to leave, and he never really t- changes his position, even if he right. if he changes his mind back and forth. And I won't say where he ends up. I think it's pretty self-explanatory based on how we're talking about it. But my point is, wherever he ends up, I will ruin this part, which I don't think it's really ruining anything, but yeah. he never changes his position. He still just wants to get out of there. Yeah, yeah. And and I and I don't remember if it's him or not, but one guy gets called out because he changes his vote for the sake of like you know, for the sake of like oh, well let's Getting get out of here with. again. Yeah. Yeah, and and he actually goes on to, you know, goes to Henry Fonda's side and 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 you know, I keep calling him juror A. He actually goes to his side. And he's like, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." don't just change just to, you know, just to go along with the crowd. Right. It's like, you need to, you know, you need to use your own sense of convictions here. And, and it's, it's about us digging into ourselves, right. And and going into our own minds and challenging what we, you know, the, the way we behave on a daily basis. So, yeah. I'm um, sorry that I, you know, I, I throw that part in there too. So yeah, yeah. And that was him, by the way, that was the same guy. Okay. So, good, all right. Good. Um, so we're going to move on to number four. That was my number five. Uh, uh-huh. uh, I almost said a different movie. Um, 12 angry men. That's my number five. Joe, give us your number four. Yeah. My, my number four, um, another movie from the two thousands. This one, um, this now I think all five of mine are different directors. Um, but this is the first one. Um, so this this particular screenwriter I'm going to be coming back to more than once. Uh, this is this is directed by Mike Nichols from 2007, Charlie Wilson's War. Uh, so um, this is um, a Tom Hanks joint, so to speak. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I believe, <laughs> uh, was nominated for an Oscar. If he didn't win one, I don't remember. Um, but um, I, I think he was just nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Um, Tom Hanks, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julia Roberts also in this film. Um, so Tom Hanks plays uh, Charlie Wilson, who is a, a congressman from Texas, who he learns um, about this small country called Afghanistan and how the Soviets are invading. Obviously, he knows the Soviets are invading him, but he begins to think maybe if we help them defeat the Soviets, that you know, we can make a good, you know, make a new friend 
out of this country and it'll give us a, a, a nice little spot in the Middle East and, you know, improve some goodwill there and give us other obvious benefits uh, with uh, oil reserves and things like that. <laughs> uh, but um, as we find out, things go very wrong. Again, this is a this is based on a true story. Charlie Wilson was a real person, um, a Texas congressman of all things, um, and he um, ends up, you, you know, this ends up being kind of mixed up in, uh, um, you know, a lot of our Middle Eastern policy, and it has repercussions for years to come. Um, it, it, it's maybe a little bit of a, a spoiler, but um, this film was made sort of in response to September 11th, 2001 and, you know, the attacks by those very same Afghanistan, you know, people from Afghanistan. Um, so this for me was, so it was kind of, I don't want to call it groundbreaking, but what it did for me was it gave me a mainstream look behind that curtain a little bit at the politics and it showed you know, and you can talk about, you know, how 100% accurate it is or is not, but it gives you the gist of what the Taliban wanted, how we helped them, and then most importantly for me, why they stopped being our friends shortly thereafter. And it it's a movie that doesn't just make America the hero. It shows that – and Charlie Wilson is as a character as well um, – it is is exasperated at what ends up happening. Um, you know, for of course we're helping them, we're funding them, and that that's what a lot of people, you know, when you know once you know once our war with Afghanistan began, this is like the roots of that. This is the the very beginnings of that. And you know, we we were very quick to paint people like Osama bin Laden and you know all of the people he was associated with as as evil as villains. And when you see what happens in this film and the ultimate repercussions of what we did, it kind of shows you a little bit of what it kind of gives you an understanding. Not that it's not that it's taking his side, but it gives an under gives you an understanding of why he did what he did in response, why the U S became an enemy to him. And it's kind of one of the first films that I've seen that points to America as something just less than your generic hero. Right. And so that, that's kind of where it, it goes for me is it's not afraid to be self-reflective and say, you know, we kind of screwed this up and this is why we're in a bad spot now because we're doing this crap that is harming other people directly. We need to, we need to be more thoughtful before we just start going half cocked on things. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my, that's my number four. The, the screenwriter of this film, by the way, is Aaron Sorkin, who is one of my favorites. Um, very popular, obviously, and and uh, so uh, I'll be talking about him again uh, before we're done talking today. <laughs> nice, yeah, yeah. You know, Charlie Wilson's War. Um, I I just want to say, you know, one thing about this. Well, two things. First off, mm -hmm. if you haven't seen this movie and you're listening, mm -hmm. go to YouTube at least and just type in Philip Seymour Hoffman, Charlie yes. Wilson's War, and it will definitely pop up at least one scene mm -hmm. um, that is probably the most memorable of his in terms of like widely memorable, you know, uh, the one yeah. that was kind of like promoted a lot, but man is Philip Seymour Hoffman. So good in this movie. I mean, even he's if, even if you don't like this movie that much, he's so great. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Um, also real quick with Mike Nichols, 
Uh, We're talking about the guy that back in 67 released The Graduate, okay? Yes. And he was doing MASH. Or no, 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 he didn't do MASH. That was Altman. Uh, He did um, uh, Catch-22. And, uh, you know, he did a series of political things even back uh, in that time during Vietnam era and different things. Um, Mm -hmm. And that guy is old as shit in 2007 and still making (laughs) kick-ass movies. And I just love Mike Nichols. Um, But that is your number four. Uh, Charlie Wilson's War. That's Joe. Absolutely. Um, my number four is uh, I always forget how to say this guy's name. So Alan J. Pakula. That's what I'm going to say. Pakula. Okay. 1976. All the President's Men. Um, yes. A movie that basically had an eight and a half million dollar budget and brought in uh, you know over seventy and a half million dollars. Uh, huge success. And I actually just rewatched this yesterday. It was on my list already, but I was like, I want to see this again just to make sure I'm down with it. Yeah. You know, definitely, definitely down with it. This is more, I would say, uh, a direct political movie. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the synopsis would basically be set in 1972. Washington Post journalists Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, and Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, uncover the Watergate scandal making history against all odds and confirming Richard Nixon was indeed a crook. Um, And it's based on a book of the same name written by Woodward and Bernstein themselves, the real folks. This is obviously based on a true story. And, oh my, I mean, I I have pretty short notes because I don't want to go on and on and on about it. Um, But I'll say this. Excuse me, I just burped. Anyways, so... (laughs) uh, You didn't need to tell everybody that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I was excited to, though. Is is this the best procedural drama about a factual event? Because I can't really think of one. Like, honestly, it it is so painfully procedural, right? Uh, But it it is so focused. Like, rewatching it, it is like, boom, boom, boom. It is all just about this specific thing and one one maybe could argue that the characters aren't as fleshed out as they could be or things like that but it is very clear from the beginning the focus of this is the procedural aspect we're going to talk about what Woodward and Bernstein did not who they are and so uh it follows that cinematography that uh is phenomenal it's by Gordon Willis who was the cinematographer for the Godfather parts one and two and also did a whole slew of uh Woody Allen movies and what what makes him so special to me is not only the look of his work. I mean, just look at it. But uh, you know, he's not only iconic for his ability, but he's versatile as shit. Think about this: yeah. The Godfather, okay, right. and then he does like Annie Hall. What? <laughs> like what? Um, yeah. And then like he does Manhattan, which is Annie Hall but black and white, basically. Yeah. But then he does you know Zelig. I think he did the Purple Rose of Cairo. I forget if he did that one specifically. But you know he's he did all these like '80s Woody Allen movies. They all look different, every one of them. And I mean, uh, man, he's just he's a real delight. But in, in this movie and all the President's Men, uh, there's hot and cold lighting combinations everywhere. Like the foreground will be that Godfather gold hue. The backgrounds are all this bluish tint. Everything pops and it restores so well. I watched a Blu-ray. Uh, the only way I could get it, maybe this is different now, but uh, there was a. Uh, double feature with All the President's Men and uh, Three Days to the Condor. I don't know if you've seen that one with Robert Redford. It's really great. Um, But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, even on that document, or on that documentary, uh, on that Blu-ray, you know, I'm sure it's not the greatest restoration, but damn, that movie still looks good. Uh, All the President's Men, I mean. 
Um, and, and Gordon Willis was also known for his softer and more natural lighting, which I am a huge fan of. So in our horror uh, lists, we talked a whole lot about practical effects, and I would geek out about that. Well, with Gordon Willis, I'm going to geek out about, you know, softer, natural lighting. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. That's my jam. And, he, and something he did in The Godfather and in this is he embraces darkness. There's a lot of darkness in it. Yes. And uh, one could argue that's also representational of the content. Um, but the dialogue delivery performances are so good. Uh, if you haven't seen this, go check it out. I mean, the overlapping dialogue, the very natural, uh, just the way they interact with one another feels so real. And it's not just about reporters getting the story. It's about how the government works like a rigged chess game. That's how I, that's what I wrote as I was watching it. Um, this is inherently political. There's nothing not political about it. It's about how uh, the people at the top that have more power than us can use and abuse that uh, to get away with crimes. Uh, and that's exactly what happened with uh, this, which is uh, a large reason for why it is my number four. Joe, do yeah. you have any feelings about all the president's men? Yeah, yeah, two two main things. Um, uh, number one, if you have been someone who is in who has in the last six to eight months said something about anonymous sources, watch this movie. Okay, watch this movie. If you know if if you've questioned the credibility of anonymous sources, um, because this movie is the one that will show you how ignorant you're being about the whole, the whole deal, right? <laughs> so that that's number one. I'm just going to say that. I'm just going to leave that out there. Obviously, the people involved in this, the, the subjects of this film, um, have become relevant again this year um, for many much of the same reason that they were back then. Um, but the, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, you mentioned this being one of the greatest procedural, you know, kind of films of all time. Um, the, the one that, the, the more modern uh, version of this that, that sprung to mind while you were speaking, while you were saying that was Spotlight from 2016. Yeah. Spotlight, if you, if you take, if you pull out the government and insert the Catholic church, Spotlight is almost a remake of all the president's men. Absolutely. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, um, it, they, they do much the same thing and they're two magnificent completely riveting films that are about journalists getting to the heart of something that um, is a complete systemic injustice um, that stretches, you know, through, you know, through the, the entire kind of structure of a major institution, a major American institution. Right. Um, so yeah, that that's, they're, they're absolutely iconic. Both of them. Uh, in, in my opinion, I would put them right next to each other. Um, and yeah, yeah, this is another good choice. Again, I left and I left this off of my list because number one, I've seen it once and it was years ago, and I didn't feel like I had enough to talk about <laughs> with it. Um, and number two, I was pretty sure you were going to include it, so I was like, "Yeah, I'll just I'll let him uh, get that in there." <laughs> yeah, I expected your reason to be because you're wrong, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> No. I have a complete agreement with you on it, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I really, really adore this movie. If you've seen Spotlight and have not seen this, but you like Spotlight, that's a great uh, comparison. Um, I thought the same thing. I'm partial to All the President's Men in large part because of Gordon Willis. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just really love the way they look, and and I love just the performances of, of Hoffman and Redford, but you're spot on. I mean, Spotlight is... Uh, is a solid choice and just switch the government out for Catholic church spot on. Um, so yeah, let's move on to the number three. Uh, we're going to pick up the pace a bit as we near our number one. 
Uh, go ahead and give us your number three, Joe. Okay, yeah, number three um, is a it's a throwback movie that was made in two thousand five. Um, this movie was one I absolutely championed this movie uh, in two thousand five, and I it was nominated for best picture. And I um, I wanted among all else to see this movie win. Um, it did not. Um, but it is an absolute just it, it's uh, George Clooney for my money his best film. Um, it's called Good Night and Good Luck. Uh, so this is uh, a film this is filmed in black and white. It is moody as hell. Uh, you know you talk about the cinematography. Um, this has got like this is one of this film's absolute strengths. Uh, it focuses on Edward R. Murrow, the the famed journalist. And you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Senator McCarthy from from the 1950s. That's what this film is about. It's yep. about Edward R. Murrow looking and questioning McCarthy and his tactics. And it is fantastic. Um, it was my absolute number one pick. I mean, I mean, you want to look at the um, the cast list. Uh, David Strathairn plays Edward R. Murrow, one of the great character actors to me, um, who a lot of people uh, maybe have overlooked. You've seen him in something. Um, he was in L.A. Confidential uh, and was amazing in that film several years before, maybe uh, five years, seven years before this. Uh, Jeff Daniels is also in it. One of his uh, one of his early political films. He's kind of made a career of that, you know, in the past 15, 20 years. Um, this may have been one of his first, you know, to to really stretch out into that area. Um, Clooney is in it also. Patricia Clarkson, Robert Downey Jr. Um, it is, it's a movie that, you know, I'm I'm not going to you know jump dig you know dig deep into it as far as you know telling you plot points and things. It it kind of has it's it's a journalist film and a political film, and it is incredible with what what it does in the use of space and you know and of course back in the days of Edward R. Murrow and, you know, journalism was, you know, TV journalism especially was close-ups on a man's face, you know, and, or, or you know, a, it's him just talking into the camera. And he, as a commentator, was amazing. Strathairn captures him in just an amazing way. Uh, Frank Langella is also in this movie, another one of my favorite actors. Um this is one I would say go back and see if you haven't. And it's it's another one of these American ideals and standing up to um, corruption and injustice, you know, that's happening in your own backyard and, and being an American and stepping up and being brave to fight against people who are trying to bully you or who are trying to make you sit down and shut up. Uh, again, another one of these to me. Uh, quintessential American type films. So yeah. um, good night and good luck. And it's incredible. I say, go see it. Absolutely. If you have not, I 100% second that I, you know, I forgot about this movie. Can you believe yeah. that? Uh huh. Fuck. I almost I mean, did. Like yeah. I would have rewatched this in a heartbeat because it's a movie I've wanted to see again. Cause I haven't seen it in a, like at least a decade. <laughs> and uh, I, I gotta say, uh, you know, I saw it after I looked into what, George Clooney had directed because at that time he did Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. And then I think this was maybe his second, maybe his third, but all I know is after I saw Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, I wanted to see his other work and that was already out. And so I remember seeing it and just it blowing my mind. And I would I would make it akin I would draw comparisons, I'll say, to Twelve Angry Men in that um you have this central character who, against all odds, is going to stand up uh for what is right. But here's the difference, I would say. 
Whereas Henry Fonda is arguing for the moral and ethical aspects of giving someone the American dream, give them a shot, give them their due process, let's take some time and care. Uh, Edward R. Murrow, that character, is focused on integrity and keeping uh, trust in the watchdogs, which is our our news system, our journalists. And so uh, tied into um, uh, uh, 12 Angry Men, where I was talking about McCarthyism, like you said, I mean, this, if you want to learn a little bit about McCarthyism, take Joe's number three and watch that, and you'll get a little brushstroke of that so that you can dig in some more. That is such a great pick. And you just reminded me, unfortunately, of one that would be my number one had I thought about it. I don't even know if it really fits. I'll th- I just typed it into my honorable mention so I can bring it up in a moment. Okay. Um, but, man, what a great choice. Do you have anything else to left to say about Good Night, Good Luck? Yeah, that, that, yeah that, I think that's all that needs to be said. Yeah, let, yeah let's, okay. let's, let's, see, let's see what you got. All right, that's his number three. My number three is Oliver Stone's 1991 JFK. Yay. Uh, JFK budget of forty million dollars, box office uh, it made two hundred five million. Uh, funny enough, only seventy million domestically. The rest of that was internationally, which tells me that there was quite a bit more interest from people in other countries. Um, but the this film is uh, about the investigation into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, led by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who is played by help me, Joe. Kevin Costner. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I had a brain fart, and I didn't write it down. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, Kevin Costner plays Jim Garrison. And when Garrison begins to doubt conventional thinking on the murder of JFK, he faces government resistance. And after the killing of suspected assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, he closes the case. Later, however, Garrison reopens the investigation, finding evidence of an extensive conspiracy behind Kennedy's death. This movie is long as shit. It's like over three hours long, I'm pretty sure. I love every minute of it. I I am 100% on the JFK train. Uh, Super, super into it. I just looked it up. It's three hours and nine minutes. Uh, uh, And and, and I want to say this, too. First off, the film was adapted uh, by the screenwriter based on two separate books, one called uh, On the Trail of, of the Assassins and the other one, um, which is more about Garrison, which is the pl- uh, crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy. And, uh-huh. uh, and I mean, the cast, the score, editing, cinematography, all of them are excellent, but it's Stone's directing that is really on point for me. The, the, from the storytelling to the choice of visual tones, uh, I mean, it is exceptional. I think this is some of his best work. And um, I don't know if I particularly believe the conspiracy that's laid out in the film as it is. Um, but this movie led me to go do my own research about it. Cause I was so like flabbergasted as my mom would say, I was like flabbergasted by all of these oversights. And, uh, but I do have to say, you know, when researching the event outside of the film, there were a lot of coincidences that make it hard for me to say that they're coincidences. And, um, I think whether or not you jump on the garrison train and you are full on JFK is truth or you just find it kind of like a room 237 about the shining. We talked about it, like people's theories. Even if you just see this as a theory like that, it is really fascinating. And I mean, you have um, 
just uh, really great performances by Tommy Lee Jones is in this and wow. plays a fantastic character. Um, that's like the big one I want to mention because I feel like he gets typecast as either the No Country for Old Men guy or like U.S. Marshals. Like he's that right. character. <laughs> but in every Oliver Stone movie he's in, he's a whack job. Like he's just a wild dude. Um, and if if you if you don't feel like you like Tommy Lee Jones, watch him in this. I think this is a really reserved and like really cool performance. Uh, but yeah, this is in uh, in the top five of my movies about politics because it shows much akin to all the president's men, um, you know, just how far the rabbit hole can go into the politics behind um, an event and, you know, how they're molded by powerful people that carry authority that we civilians don't have. And so, you know, um, we don't have the power to cover up these things or to, to make certain things go away as they say. Right. But these people do, these are the people that tell the people that would arrest us what to do, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so they can just shred the evidence like they do in all the president's men or, you know, like all of that stuff. So uh, long, long story short, JFK, Oliver Stone, 1991. I think this is one of his best films. Uh, Just one quick thing with the visual tone. I mentioned what I love about the cinematography and the overall direction and vision of this movie is it starts with like, these really just traditional 90s looking camera, like beautiful camera work, but he'll cut to these really grainy black and white things. And um, like, there's a lot of like kind of jump cuts to things. And uh, like, there will be a scene where like, say Tommy Lee Jones is talking, but it'll cut to like a black and white thing and his voice is still talking, but it's like a completely different scene. Just really like creative ways of using the camera to tell the story. I really love JFK. Uh, I'm assuming that you've seen this, Joe. How do you feel about JFK? Yeah, I did. I uh, So, yeah, let me tell you. So we said JFK came out in 1991. That would have made me 13 years old. I saw it in the theater. I insisted my dad take me to see it in the theater. It was my first Oliver Stone movie, I believe. Um, I might have to – I might have to um, – it was certainly my first Oliver Stone political movie. I hadn't seen Platoon um, or Born on the Fourth of July at that point. I believe those. I believe those both came out. Am I right? Those both came out before yeah, JFK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I did love it. Um, yeah. Again, the, you know, it it contributes to the aura and the mystery of of the Kennedy assassination. Um, whether you know, I I have no idea how, um, credible any of the you know the theories presented in the film are, but it like you said, very interesting. It doesn't matter to me so much um, because it's what. You know, it's what Oliver Stone believed, and it's what um, Jim Garrison, to an extent, believed. I think he came out against a couple of things in it, um, if I don't, if I remember that right. But I mean, listen to the cast, and I'm I'm just going through the list. This has got a crazy long cast. Oh, uh, it's Costner. incredible! Yeah, yeah. Edward Asner, Jack Lemmon, Vincent D'Onofrio, Gary Oldman, for God's sake, uh, Sissy Spacek, Brian Doyle Murray, Wayne Knight, Michael Rooker, Laurie Metcalf. Um, hopefully you guys listening or you're all fans of film and you know, all these people, Joe Pesci has a, has a really terrific role. Um, Walter Matthau is in it. Um, it, Tommy Lee Jones, as you mentioned, John Candy, Kevin Bacon, 
I mean, li- I mean, listen to that. I mean, that's insane. I mean, those people were all, at, and at that time, I, every one of those people was a bona fide star, right? Yeah, and even uh, even someone like Donald Sutherland is also. I yeah, mean, yeah, you I haven't gotten keep, to Donald Sutherland. I know, I yeah. Seen him yet. I knew yeah, that I yeah. could watch where you were going because we're both on IMDb while we're talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I just yeah, knew just you were getting down. There. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it, there's, there's Donald there's, Sutherland finally. Yeah, there's um, so, so many people in this that yeah. even if you don't know the name, John Lorquette's in it. Uh, even if yeah. you don't know the name, go type in any of these and you'll probably recognize these people. I mean, this is all star yeah. AAA cast. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's really about as much as I have to say. I I, I like that pick. Um, it was one that was, it's actually would, uh, as my, one of my honorable mentions. So, um, you know, so we won't, I won't have a whole lot to say about it, you know, at that point. Um, but yeah, that's, that's another good pick. Yeah. That's pretty strong. Well, that's my number three JFK by Oliver Stone. Um, we're down to our two. We're going to, we're going to work through these. I'm just going to say this now, my number two, I'm not going to reveal it yet, but my number two, I have a lot of notes for, I'm probably going to cut them way down and I might just kind of follow. We'll just kind of see how it goes. Cause I have, this is the second longest one I have. (laughs) <laughs> so I really don't want to take a ton of time uh, yeah. on this next one, even though I feel like some people would be like, why is that on a political list? Even though I see it as something uh, directly political and there's just so much good lore, but I'm just, it doesn't matter what's your number two, Joe, go for it. Yeah. 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 And and my, my, both of my last two, uh, I would say are maybe, maybe lighter hearted um, to an extent uh, in that they're both comedies. Number one, um, but, and they both revolve around the office of the presidency. Uh, my pick for number two, uh, was directed by Ivan Reitman from 1993. It's a movie called Dave. Uh, so, uh, this is stars Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver, uh, the aforementioned Frank Langella, uh, Kevin Dunn and Bing Rames, Ben Kingsley, Charles Grodin. I mean, this is a pretty strong, this is kind of an underrated kind of cast. Um, Charles Grodin, Laura Linney, Bonnie Hunt. And Anna Devere Smith, among other people, uh, and some of those names, in those last couple of names, maybe you don't know if you're a more casual film fan, but um, I guarantee you, you've seen every one of these people in a film. Um, so the the story, if if you're not familiar with it, uh, Kevin Klein plays two roles. He plays President Bill Mitchell, who is a vaguely Clinton esque figure, uh, you know, in in the the mid '90s. Um, you know, a younger, good-looking man uh, who, behind the scenes, is maybe somebody a little different. He uh, suffers a medical event that um, leaves him in a coma, unable to f- fulfill his duties. Instead of uh, bringing the vice president in, instead, his a couple of his evil cabinet members uh, instead find a double uh, to come in and stand in for the president and pretend to be the president. And their thought is he could be their puppet. Uh, and they can, you know, force through some of the things, some of their agenda items that the the vice president, uh, again, who's played by Ben Kingsley, would not have allowed. Right. So um, they see him as as a puppet and he comes in and they find out that he's a little more of a, a worthy uh, presidential figure than they thought and start to have some issues with him. Um, uh, this is um, probably my favorite Kevin Klein movie. Um he is really engaging in this. Um, this again is a very mainstream kind of film. Uh, like I said, Ivan Reitman directed it, you know, from Ghostbusters fame. Um, and, uh, it's, it's lighthearted for the most part, 
But again, what it does for me is it captures that American spirit, you know, the the spirit of doing what's right and being principled and standing up for yourself when when uh, you're faced with with someone who's trying to take advantage of you. And it's it's to me did so much right. It's it's just a lovable kind of film. Um, there there is a scene where he is uh, Dave is playing the president. Um, so he's in a cabinet meeting and he's been instructed and, and Frank Langella, I should say is one of the great villains, you know, great actors playing, you know, as far as playing a villain ever, as far as I'm concerned. And he is in top form here. And there's a moment, there's a couple of moments where he is absolutely sinister and absolutely intimidating. And Kevin Klein plays off of him in, in an incredible way. Um, so, so anyway, so there, there's the, the one scene I wanted to point out is they're in a cabinet meeting and, um, uh, Bob Alexander, Frank Langella's character has given him very specific instructions on what he's supposed to do and what he's supposed to, um, push through. And what he had done instead is he brought in his buddy, um, again, Charles Grodin plays his, his best friend and they went in and balanced the budget between the two of them in secret. And instead of doing this thing that that his cabinet members want him to do, his advisors want him to do, he goes through and just shames everyone into doing what's right. You know, he and he he not only balances the budget, but he also throws money to all of these social projects or you know social um, programs that everyone ignores, right? And it's it's a, just a it's a brilliant, fun, funny scene and. Um, so I, I've not mentioned Sigourney Weaver, um, and I, I really want to because she was pretty good in this as well. Um, there's she's the romantic interest um, who plays also plays Kevin Klein's wife. Uh, again, if these are the Clintons, she's certainly you know kind of brings Hillary to mind back <laughs> in, in those days. But she is really good, and she is much more in this film than just the simple love interest. She's not just there to be a, you know, a pretty lady to, to uh, distract Kevin Klein. She's a partner and, and she actually is a driving force and, you know, and who he is. And so that, that's uh, one of my favorite movies. Just, it's a movie that when you see on TV, I'm always stopping to watch it. And um, yeah, Dave uh, from 1993. Yeah. Dave is, uh, <clears throat> that was on my list of stuff to rewatch. Uh, yeah. So I honestly don't have a whole lot to add just cause I need to see it again. I mean, uh, I, I I just remember watching it because it was Ivan Reitman. Like that was yeah. the, that uh-huh. was the only reason really at the time. Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, I would have to revisit that. I will say though, just just for fun, Sigourney Weaver around this time did some very interesting movies. Because uh, yeah. of course, you know, in like '89 she does Ghostbusters two, and then Alien three in '92. Uh-huh. But then she, you know, she does Dave. And then she does like Death and the Maiden, which is a Roman Polanski movie that no one's seen. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. And just like all these like really weird movies. But I actually like this era of her. And so yeah. it also makes me kind of want to go back to like Dave and just see how much I like her in that as well. But uh-huh. that's a great pick. That makes complete sense. And yeah. uh, and it's really fun. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and jump in to my number two. Oh, man, I like it's gonna. I need you to keep me under wraps, <laughs> Joe, because I don't want to talk about this too long. I'm sure it'll be yeah. on another list at some point, or you know, we'll challenge the the BFI lists on why this is, 
you know, is or is not one of the top two best films of all time. Uh, but uh-huh. I'm talking about Orson Welles' 1941 Citizen Kane. And, uh, okay. Uh, the, uh, I, I can't even talk about budgets and stuff. Not that we need to, but, um, yeah. I mean, these numbers don't make any sense to me. Everything I'm finding, right. <laughs> nothing <laughs> adds up quite enough. I just know it lost money. Um, yeah. and, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but, um, if you, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane or if you've heard of it, but you don't know what it's about, it's basically about a newspaper mega power, Charles Foster Kane. Uh, he's uh, taken from his mother as a boy and made the ward of a rich industrialist. And as a result, every well-meaning, tyrannical, or self-destructive move he makes for the rest of his life appears in some way to be a reaction to the deeply wounding event in his history. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's basically about... Um, I mean, it's it's the classic rise and fall story of a man struggling with his past. And you have uh, this character that, um, you know... I hate to use this phrase, but lifts himself up by his bootstraps and builds something great, but it ultimately corrupts him. Um, And it's, it is, I mean, you know, at first it starts with him being a newspaper mogul and then uh, turns into him being a politician, literally some of the most famous scenes and sets um, and special effects and stuff are related to those political moments in his campaigns. I mean, this directly deals with politics in that way. Uh, But, um, in terms of, uh, I'm going to skip a lot of the stuff I had for style because we could just sit yeah. and talk about some of the right. important things with this. Um, but, you know, one thing to keep in mind is deep focus. Uh, he, he somehow does this deep focus where, like, everything in the shot is in focus somehow. and But he does yeah. it for long periods of time. And uh, I'd have to look into how he did it. But it's really impressive. But what's interesting about this, just real quick, is none of the things uh, that he did in the movie were new like it often gets praised for uh he how he created certain techniques like deep focus uh or certain special effects or like what's funny is one of the touch point like the bullet points is shots of the ceiling (laughs) you know (laughs) and like these things in the movie uh but these have been done since the beginning of film i mean the special Mm -hmm. effect techniques he uses mainly as used in 1800s you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, this is old stuff. But what this movie does is they take all of those techniques that have been used before, and not only do they put them in one movie, but they perfect them. And, yeah. uh, you know, it, he almost reminds me of, like, a Tarantino, but 50 years prior. You know, yeah. like, uh, in terms of, like, a cinematic kleptomaniac, it kind of takes all these little things, um, but he yeah. makes he innovates them, and he makes something new. And I think that's what... Um, Citizen Kane was, but I mean, this movie was at least 20 years ahead of its time. Um, But uh, I mean, you know, you had an early Bernard Herrmann score, um, you know, tons of sets and special effects that are just absolutely top notch. Makeup effects are really, really good for 1941. Uh, Like, Mm -hmm. I still think they hold up for its age. You know what I mean? I mean, you can tell, you know, there's makeup, but it looks great. But this film's considered an anti-fascist film. So... Um, you know, back to totally under yeah. control in the Trump administration. This is an Antifa movie. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, I, um, hey. but, no, um, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I mean, technically, not I'm not. All, no. but, <laughs> I'm going with it. Uh, but no, the film's considered an anti-fascist film, which is, uh, you know, where we bring in a lot of those politics as well, because mm-hmm. there's so much subtextual like aspects that point directly at politics. My favorite of which, chief among them, is how mass media... Uh, manipulation uh, manipulates public opinion and also yes. the marriage between news media and politics 
Um, yes. And, and so uh, a quick controversy thing, and then we'll move on. Uh, so William Randolph Hearst was a media mogul in real life and was super pissed uh, about mm-hmm. this movie because um, uh, Orson Welles was basically making it about him, kind of. It's not a biopic about him, but he was using right. a lot of Hearst's life. And um, Hearst was responsible for one in four Americans, like the news that they received. His publications covered yep. one in four, 25% of over all Americans, right? Learned from yeah. this guy. And so William Randolph Hearst was so pissed at Citizen Kane because it kind of made him look bad, even though he never mentions Hearst. And Orson right. Welles did do this secretly. He would actually mislead people to think the movie was about something else just so he could yep. get it made. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he does that. And uh, Hearst was so pissed that he banned any advertising, reviewing, or mentioning of Citizen Kane in his paper. So 25% of the American population misses this, okay? Um, And he had his journalists publish false statements about Wells. So now he's committing libel, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. He's like uh, defaming um, this guy. And then, uh, you know, so nearly one in four Americans got their news from Hearst publication, and uh, this was a huge deal. So why was he mad? Well, again, Charles Foster Kane, the, the lead character that Orson Welles plays, was a representation of Hearst, uh, by and large. And there uh, are just too many... thinly veiled, maybe. Yeah, yes, right. exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it, there are too many similarities to kind of argue, and, and uh, it's a criticism of Hearst uh, by proxy. And so, uh, furthermore, a fun... F- uh, I almost said fact. It's not a fact at all. But something I actually learned in film school, I don't know why. I don't know why my professor brought this up, but a fun fact, trivia. Uh, Rosebud, which is a very, very like important aspect that ties into his past and all the things I mentioned up top. Uh, it's kind of the crux of the film. And uh, it was actually what Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, called his friend Marion Davies' clitoris. How hilarious is that? Wow. <laughs> That is incredible. <laughs> now, hold on, hold on, hold on. You know, th- this is, uh, of course, cannot be confirmed, okay? But right. there were right. talks of this. Why he's talking about his, quote-unquote, friend's clitoris, I don't know. Um, right. But there's there's a whole thing in there. But I, I just remember hearing that and being, like, floored. Whether it's true or not, it's just, like, such a great story. But Citizen really? Kane is my number two favorite movie about politics because, in large part, it depicts the marriage uh, between news media and politics. So that's my number two. Do you have anything to say about that, Joe? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of just pass on it. Um, if you have taken a film class and a, a film, a college level film course in your life, um, I'm sure you've seen it. That's how I saw Citizen Kane. Um, if you haven't, and you can go back to college and take a film course, do it. Um, I can't recommend that enough, um, because you'll learn a lot and, um, it's, it's a damn good movie. And, uh, you can't, you know, it's it's a it's an important film to watch for sure for all those reasons you laid out. Um, even if you don't like those black and white old movies, you know, uh, you should still watch it. If if you if you are a film lover and you haven't seen it, there's a hole in your in your uh, your over over. Is that how you say that? How do you say that? There's there's a hole in your in your filmography yeah. if you have not seen that film. So um, yeah, I mean, I'll just uh, say this: BFI, the British Film Institute. You know, one of the kind of higher, uh, more prestigious um, institutes related to film in the world, I would say. If you look up their 100 greatest films of all time, which is essentially uh, like they 
basically bring together all these critics and all these people that they consider qualified to make such a statement. And they put they put them all together and they find like the consensus, basically. And they have a whole top 100. You can Google BFI, the 100 greatest films of all time. Uh, the number one at this moment is Vertigo. Number two, Citizen Kane. Just a few years ago, number one was Citizen Kane. Number two was Vertigo. They constantly flip, but it's always in one or two. So that doesn't mean it has to reflect how you feel about it, but Citizen Kane, just to back Joe's point, is extremely important. And uh, I will say this real quick. You know, It wasn't super popular in the 40s um, or even really that much through the 50s, but once you get into the uh, late 50s and the 60s, especially the French, um, you know, they would write essays in, in publications like Cahiers de Cinema and things like that, talking about Hitchcock and all these people. But they really championed Citizen Kane as well. And Citizen Kane kind of had a renaissance around uh, that kind of uh, when film really became a focus and there were actual film majors in schools and, and things like that. And all these kind of new Hollywood guys like Scorsese and... Uh, Spielberg and Bogdanovich and Friedkin, all these guys coming in that loved film. Citizen Kane, that was like the first generation of people that truly appreciated this movie. So if you love their movies, I mean, to some extent, you have to give credit to this film that was 20 years ahead of its time. So that's my number two. Joe, we're there, man. (laughs) Number one, man. (laughs) Yeah, number one. Um, So yeah, so my number one, again, uh, this is lighthearted. We're circling back around to Aaron Sorkin. Um, who is, you know, again, one of the best, one of the best screenwriters around, um, his, his new movie, the trial of Chicago seven is certainly worth seeing, um, which he directs, directed and wrote by the way. Um, but he did not direct this film. This film came out in 1995, was directed by a gentleman who I have come to know a little bit, uh, named Rob Reiner. Uh, this is, uh, the American president, uh, stars Michael Douglas, it's actually a very um, good all-star cast. Michael Douglas, Annette Benning, Martin Sheen, Michael J. Fox, again, Anna DeVere Smith, who is also in Dave, who I mentioned. She um, she is particularly good in this film. Uh, David Paymer, Samantha Mathis, Richard Dreyfus, playing the sleaziest character um, <laughs> that probably he's ever played. I would guess that I can remember. Um, he is... Um, Maybe he's Newt Gingrich and maybe he's not, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, um, this is again, um, Michael Douglas is again, Clinton esque to a degree and that he's pretty liberal and the conservatives really hate him. Um, he is uh, a bachelor in this film. This is, uh, uh, in a lot of ways, a straight romance, but, uh, you know, with, with the backdrop of, of American politics. So he's the president, he's a single dad to a daughter. And he decides he wants to go on a date with a woman that he meets named Sydney Ellen Wade, again, played by Annette Bening, um, who is a lobbyist who has decided to get tough with him on the eve of a very important crime bill that he's trying to pass. Well, it's not a crime bill. It's a, um, uh, I think it's an environmental regulation bill, if I remember. Um, she, she's a member of the environmental lobby. And um, so they start to date. And, you know, there's a lot of just kind of cutesy stuff in the middle. Um, and, and then in the midst of it, there's also an election coming up. And uh, uh, Dreyfus's uh, character, the Republican Senator Bob Rumson, has been saying a lot of really mean things about the president. And uh, but he's also gaining ground on him in the election. So there's a lot going on in the film. 
Um, there, this is a, a movie that has a lot of these Sorkin-esque speeches. Um, Michael J. Fox has a couple of them. Uh, Michael Douglas certainly has several. Um, I will so, so um, I want to and I want to I want to mention this is has nothing to do with my love for this film, um, but I I've, I've had the opportunity to interview Rob Reiner two different times. Um, the first time I was on the phone, the second time I was in person. And it's one I consider it one of the great thrills of my life that I got to thank him for a specific scene in this movie that never fails to make me crack up. Uh, that scene is um, when I believe it's when um, Sidney Ellen Wade and the president, President Andrew Shepard, for I believe it was when they're first meeting, she's going in to um, lobby him and she wants strict environmental regulations. And he is he's again playing politics is giving up some of the ground on the environment for his, to push his, his bill through for, um, I don't know. He's, he's like using it as a chip, right? So he's going to reduce the environmental bill in exchange for something else, uh, you know, in his, in his big bill. So she is in there talking to, to one of his aides or something. And she's, she's playing tough and she's like, well, if he thinks he's going to just, walk over us. He's got another thing coming, you know? And so she, and she's got this really fiery thing she's saying, but she doesn't realize that he's walked in the room behind her and he's standing behind her as she is insulting him. And she's being really, you know, patronizing and demeaning. And he, <laughs> and he, uh, again, I'm just cracking up thinking about it. And so he finally interrupts her and he says, let's drag him out back and beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and, and it, and it horrifies her. But the way he's just the droll way he says it cracks me up every single time. Um, this is a, you know, this is a Rob Reiner movie. Rob Reiner is very, um, he's very liberal Americana. And this film certainly reflects that. Um, all of the good speeches are given, you know, from kind of a liberal context and from a liberal point of view. Um and Richard Dreyfus as the conservative is certainly a, a straight villain in this movie. Um, and, and he's, you know, he's portrayed as, as sniveling and weaselly in a lot of ways. So um, you're not going to find conservative balance on it by any means, but it is entertaining. It's warm and fun and it makes you feel good about yourself. Um, but it also shows you how cutthroat American politics are. And that's, that's really what I love about it. That's really what, um, you know, makes it one of my favorite Rob Reiner movies in a, in a career that has a lot of really, really good movies, um, in the eighties and nineties, especially, um, uh, is, is one of my favorites and is one that a lot of people I think forget about. So, um, that's why I made it my number one. Yeah, that's, that is great. I, I feel slightly ashamed that I've never seen this. Wow, really? Um, yeah, yeah I, I have to go check that out. I, I will say this, though. You were giving uh, Richard Dreyfuss a lot of shit. The day that we're recording this is his birthday, so oh, I'm wow. sure he appreciates that, Joe. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I but... love him in this movie, <laughs> and I love him in so many other movies. But no, no, uh, Happy birthday, yeah. Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, even though when this airs, it'll be uh, old old hat there. But, um, yeah, this is, this is uh, a great choice. I'm fully familiar with the movie. I've never watched it. Rob Reiner uh, is one of those guys that has, I feel like, like the best movie or top five quality movie in like almost every genre he tackles. 
You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. if it's a mockumentary, this is Spinal mm-hmm. Tap. If it's a rom-com, yes. you know, When Harry Met Sally, which is so good, by the way, if no one's seen yeah. that and you think it's a silly, dumb rom-com, it's super, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of an Annie Hall uh, type movie, but it's, right. I love Annie Hall and I love that and it's so great. Mm-hmm. Anyways, great choice. Love it. <laughs> My number one has already been mentioned. <laughs> All Can right. you guess, Joe? What that number one is? Hmm. You know what? Yes, I bet I can. I bet I can. I, I'm not going to guess it, but I'll tell you if it's one I was thinking of when you say it. It is. I I bet it's one that I I said I did not include on my list. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This will yes. be. Was that what you were thinking? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm Mr. Kubrick Tattoo uh, for life. Uh, Kubrick. I'm going to say this, though, uh, just so I, I don't get really um, I, I want to actually say this real quick. If we did like war movies, right? Mm-hmm. Full Metal Jacket would probably be on there, but it wouldn't be yeah. number one. Like just because mm-hmm. he's my favorite filmmaker doesn't mean his movies automatically get number one. It's just coincidentally, you yeah. know, we have our uh-huh. horror with The Shining and, and this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just particular, I just really stand by these, you know, and, and but the thing yeah. is, uh, I think our next list, um, mm-hmm. I think our next one will probably be something with Scorsese. But after that, though, <laughs> mm-hmm. if yeah. we ever have an open list, I think I'm just going to put Kubrick in the penalty box if he has a movie, yeah. <laughs> like just so uh-huh. just for the sake of, you know, variety and and having yeah. something. Um, but anyways, you know, I won't harp on too long about this. Uh, Dr. Strangelove, uh, as we will call it, um, you know, uh, you know, one point eight million dollars approximately it cost to make it. Box office nearly ten million dollars. I mean, uh, worldwide, it, it makes its money back and more. Uh, and uh, the synopsis is basically: after an insane general, Jack D. Ripper, uh, initiates a nuclear strike on the Soviet Union, a war room full of politicians, generals, and a Russian diplomat all frantically try to stop the nuclear strike. Now that's a basic summation of what the movie is. What it is yeah. leaving out, however, is all of the hilarious moments that ensue. This is dark mm-hmm. comedy, possibly at its best. I don't know if this would be like my favorite. If we did a dark comedy, it might be on the list, but it wouldn't be my favorite. But I mean, this is really expertly done. And it's, yeah. you know, it's in the heart of the Cold War. Like, you know, that's really raging at that time. Yeah. Um, and it takes direct shots at policies and events that were happening around that time. And there was the the theory of mutual assured destruction or mad yes. as they called it. And that's pretty much what the movie's about. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the whole movie is dealing with this political theory of what would happen. And then you have this hilariously named General Jack D. Ripper, um, right. you know, uh, causing mayhem. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously uh, a critique of the Eisenhower administration. And uh, I, I love this entire movie, but... Um, for this list, the kind of tipping point is the war room scenes. Uh, I mean, those are satire at, at its finest. Um, and uh, if you've never seen this movie, it's literally a black room, basically, with this huge ring light, essentially, or a series of lights that form this huge ring over this big ring table. Uh, Google Dr. Strangelove, and one of the images will easily pop up. I mean, this war room is an iconic set piece, and I that, that all of those scenes are great. And we have actors like Peter Sellers who plays three different characters, George C. Scott, which is an over the top, uh, general, but the, I mean, his name's Buck, which is also really great. Um, but general Buck Turgeson, 
Sterling Hayden plays Jack D. Ripper. Uh, you have Slim Pickens. You have uh, James Earl Jones, who's Darth Vader himself. Uh, I love that there's a guy, I just want to say this, there's a guy named Glenn Beck, but it's not that Glenn Beck, okay? Um, but no, there, there, there's, uh, you would recognize so many people in this movie if you don't recognize all the names. Um, this is uh, a really great black and white, uh, again, just really piercing satire comedy, but it's also, in my opinion, and it may be only my opinion, but uh, I think this is laugh out loud funny, this movie. Oh, I, I, I mean, I think it's really funny but again there are direct political criticisms and and kind of jabs um wow i mean w- to wrap this up joe i mean what what do you say about this movie you know yeah it yeah it, it is it's absolutely an all-time great um i i almost i almost feel bad about mentioning it earlier um i i should have mentioned you know mr smith goes to washington or something because just because of that um, after I said that, I was like, yeah, it's probably going to be on his list. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, yeah, Peter Sellers, the, the one that gets me, you know, of course the, you know, there's no fighting in the war room, you know, it was a classic line and, um, the Peter Sellers playing, and I don't remember, um, which character it was, but where he's, he's the, the secret Nazi and yeah, he's that like, is Dr. Strangelove. Like, yeah. 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 And no one rec, no one realizes that he's a, he's like literally like trying to stop himself from giving the Nazi salute and stuff, you know? So it's, yeah, it, it's a great movie. I, I, you know, I, I had a list years ago of movies that, um, I should, I feel like I should have seen that I haven't seen. And it was, a it was probably 75 or a hundred, you know, it was 101 movies, as a matter of fact. And, um, this was on that list. And so I watched it, you know, this was, you know, 20 years ago. So I watched it and, some of them I, and this is one of them that I expected to be uh, kind of a, a movie just not of my time that I wouldn't you know necessarily enjoy that I would have to try to appreciate. Um, but I love this movie. Yeah. When I saw, it, I was cracking up, you know, and it was the, the comedy held up to me. Um, it, it's very, it somehow is high and lowbrow at the same time. Yep. And, you know, so it, it's just, it's brilliant in so many ways. And yeah, it's, it's an absolute, it's an absolute great choice that I, you know, um, I, again, and I told you the reasons why I, I didn't include that. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's spot on and it's absolutely, you know, among the, the all time greats. Right. So, yeah. I mean, Dr. Strange love is my number one. I want to say a couple of things real quick, going back to my number three, uh, with JFK, the JFK assassination in, in real life, uh, affected the release of this film, Doctor Strange Love. Don't oh, know if you knew that. Um, first, uh, the first test screening was screened uh, on the day Kennedy was shot, um, and then uh, during post production, one line that Slim Pickens says is, "A fella, wait, a fella can have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all that stuff." But it was oh. dubbed to change to Vegas because uh, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. I- and then um, another time was uh, the assassination also serves as another possible reason that uh, there's a, a famous cut pie fight scene uh, that mm-hmm. was cut from the movie, and you can you yeah. can uh, learn about that. But uh, in in the scene after one of the characters takes a pie to the face, General uh, General Buck, as I mentioned, uh, uh, I got distracted because I wanted to say his name and I forgot <laughs> his name, uh, George C. Scott. Uh, then George C. Scott exclaims, gentlemen, our gallant young pre- uh, president has been struck down in his prime. 
and uh, they they yeah. kind of cut that out. I mean, it, it's a pretty interesting um, thing, but it was nominated for four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Actor, and uh, the actor was Peter Sellers, uh, but it won yeah. none of them, which is criminal. So yeah. um, that said, uh, a few honorable mentions. I'm uh, yeah. Well, why don't you go, Joe? Let's just like blaze yeah. through them. We don't have to talk about them. Yeah, yeah, I'll just roll through. Um, you know, you mentioned all the president's men, Doctor Strangelove. I mentioned Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Um, election from Alexander Payne. Uh, yeah, those those are just some that I would I would throw into the um, throw into the mix that that are, are terrific movies. Of course, I also have JFK on there. Yeah. Uh, again, we talked about it. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's. Uh, thank you for smoking. That's another one that yeah that. Um, yeah, that kind of flew under the radar for a little bit, and I saw it. I was like, yes, that one too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, my my uh, honorable mentions, the one that I forgot until you brought up Good Night and Good Luck, and I, mm-hmm. I, I, I need to think about this more, but um, Clooney's in it, and it's Michael Clayton. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that'd be like number one for me. I, I don't know uh-huh. if people can understand how much I love this movie, but I it's adore a hell of a movie, that yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, but, you know, other ones, All the King's Men, The Battle of Our Jeers, which is not American, which is why it wasn't on there. Uh, documentaries mm-hmm. like Bowling for Columbine, which is probably my all-time favorite political yeah. documentary, um, uh-huh. and Fahrenheit 9-11, Spike Lee's Malcolm X, the original Manchurian Candidate, uh, also Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I put on there, as well as State of the Union, both Capra films. I don't consider myself a huge Capra fan, um, but I like these two. Um, Nixon from Oliver Stone, I had my one... Uh, filmmaker thing and although i don't know if this would have been on my top five nixon is kind of in the vein of jfk but instead of being kind of like a procedural uh courtroom uh type investigator thing this is about nixon but a lot of the same techniques it's kind of a a companion piece um the time the times of harvey milk which is a great documentary uh gus van zandt did the 2008 movie milk which is great but the documentary is really great and, uh, of course, Wag the Dog, which stars uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro, a really yes. popular one. But I want to name one more, and then we're going to sign off here. Uh, Robert Altman's Secret Honor. Have you ever seen okay. this? I've never seen that, no. It's from uh, 84, I think, and it's a one-man show, okay, um, where – let me let – me, uh, Philip Baker Hall, I believe, is the actor. One second. Um, yeah. But uh, – so Philip Baker Hall plays Richard Nixon – he traps himself in his office, and it's a 90... Let me see how long it is. Uh, yeah, exactly 90 minutes of him just going off. Like, he's freaking... Because, <laughs> you know, Watergate's already happened. They're trying to get his tapes and all... You know, so he has a tape recorder, and he's just talking the whole time. And, I mean, it is... What a great performance uh, by Philip Baker <laughs> Hall. So if you haven't seen Secret Honor, it won't be for everybody. Uh, but it is a really entertaining movie for people like me. Uh, but that is our top five favorite movies about politics. Joe, how do you feel about that? I'm very happy. Yeah, and and I'm also excited and interested to know what what our listeners think. Um, you know, shoot us your own top five. You know, um, uh, you know, hit us up on on Facebook and then Twitter and Instagram and and tell us what yours are. And and uh, yeah, I'd love to know. We, I'm sure we've missed some. We had to have missed a few. You know, real gems. That, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, tell us what we missed. Absolutely. Please, please, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Let us know all that and more. Um, but for now, Joe, we're going to sign off. All right. All right. Thanks a lot.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed Joe and I's top five favorite movies about politics and our, uh, I just said and weird, but and our conversation with Jeff Rhoda at the top of the episode. You know, uh, this episode is really fun. Again, go check out the bonus content. Um, it might be a little bit of a bummer, but you know, I at least know that my, you know, some of my close friends will be really into that. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, please go check it out, though. I think it's really important. Uh, please get on our social media, Medium Cool Pod, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. Medium Cool Pod on Instagram. Just search it and we'll pop up. And then at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also uh, email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. The reason I'm pushing the social media again is because we're going to have some really, really awesome interviews coming up. And I want you guys to be involved and be able to uh, to know what's coming up. And another way that you can know what's coming up is to subscribe or follow us on either iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Heck, why don't you just follow us on two of, or, or all three of them if you can. Either way, it's helpful for us, and we appreciate you very much. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there's no better time to end than now. So thank you all for listening. Good night, good luck, and take care.